everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Greg Johnson, who has recently released the brand new book, Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempts to Cure Homosexuality. And whenever I first saw this book, I was I, I knew that I wanted to talk with Greg about it. It 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 covers a I mean it covers a lot. This is this is one of those topics that I feel like gets at the center, very center of what the Learners Corner was started for. And if this happens to be your first time uh, listening to the Learners Corner, really we have two core beliefs that drive a lot of what we do here on the podcast. The first one is this: is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone. And from anything and from and everything, regardless of whether or not we agree with someone 100% on said thing, and particularly from for for those of us who find ourselves in the faith community, you know, people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, um, there's just a lot of varying opinions in it as well. And just remember that we don't have to agree completely in order to have productive dialogue or as you know as I said earlier or to learn from each other as well and the other core belief is this is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations and as I mentioned on topics to where there's a lot of different opinions on it or a lot of different views or a lot of different beliefs on it that can often lead to a lot of conflict in there as well and regardless of whatever subject is being discussed I want to make sure that we do it in a way that is honoring and that is very um, civil and very loving as well. And that's why I'm so excited to have Greg on the podcast today, because, you know, in in this book and even in our conversation, I feel like he just does such a good job of um, framing the conversation in that way. So let me tell you a little bit about Greg. So Greg is the lead pastor of Historic Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, where he has served on pastoral staff since 2003. He also holds a PhD in historical theology with a concentration in American religion from St. Louis University and an MDiv, Masters of Divinity from Covenant Theological Seminary. We're going to talk a lot about the history. This this is one of the things that I love about his book is he gets into um, into the, just the history, and uh, I love learning about history because I think it, I think it better helps us understand and learn how to respond in um, in the moment and learn from the past as well. He is the uh, he is also the author of the World According to God: A Biblical View of Culture, Work, Science, Sex, and Everything Else. And as I mentioned just a little bit earlier, the author of the brand new book, "Still Time to Care: What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure." homosexuality. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Greg Johnson. Well, Greg, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you, Caleb. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and I know that we're going to talk a lot about your book, you know, Still Time to Care. Um, but before that, 
I would love to hear um, just kind of your story and a little bit about what what led you to the place to where um, you want to write still Time to Care and kind of the story behind that as well. Yeah, well, gosh, it's a long story. Um, you know, I uh, I was raised in the D.C. area. Um, I was atheist. Uh, I was a gay kid and became a Christian in, in college. And, uh, you know, I've been walking with God in celibacy ever since. And, uh, you know, witnessing discussions about sexuality, um, sexual identity and orientation in recent years, um, you know, I have just been hitting my head against the wall over the number of things people say that they say because they've always heard them said. And they think they maybe have reasons for why they say it, but they're very hurtful things. And, um, and I don't think they understood or understand where some of these things that they always say came from. Uh, you know, I, I experienced the ex-gay movement, um, you know, which, you know, began in the, the mid-1970s and really crashed and burned about a decade ago with the closure of Exodus International. And, and so I know a thing or two about reparative therapy and conversion therapy and ex-gay ministry and what we all went through. Um, and, uh, and I remember I was talking to a friend of mine, Nate Collins, one afternoon, and uh, and I just told him, somebody has to tell this story, this history, because people don't understand why they're saying the things they're saying or how they're hurtful or how when you tell somebody you can't be gay and be a Christian, they're not going to hear what you think you're, he- you're they're going to hear, uh, you know, and you're going to injure them. And uh, so I, I told him, you know, Somebody has to write the history of the ex-gay movement and of what preceded it, because there's a lot to learn there. And uh, my friend Nate brainstormed with me what it would take for somebody to write a book like this that could actually look at historically how conservative Bible-believing Christians have changed their entire vocabulary about sexual orientation and identity over the last 50 years and, and, uh, and why. And he said, well, really, it seemed like this has to be somebody with like a PhD in historical theology so that they can track how, you know, doctrine and belief change over time in communities that don't realize they're changing their belief system. And uh, and he said, I ideally like this cannot be written by a straight person. A straight person would have no credibility at all. But if it's by somebody who's same-sex attracted or, or gay and celibate, whatever terminology they use, um, it has to be somebody who's not 25 years old. It has to be somebody who's like 45 or 50 years old who's been doing this for a long time and has a long track record and isn't going to change what they believe in a few years. Um, and he said, you know, ideally this would be a pastor who has who has pastored people um, who aren't straight um, and uh, and and preferably a theological conservative, because you don't want this this thing to be called a slippery slope toward liberalism. So if you can find an old school, unreconstructed 17th century Calvinist complementarian who believes in the inerrancy of the Bible, that would be really helpful. And then as we brainstormed further, there were several other things. Somebody ideally who was a part of the ex-gay movement, who experienced that. Um, somebody with some uh, knowledge and, and contacts uh, within the ex-gay, within former ex-gay ministries. 
um, somebody who has a network to connect, to tell people's stories, to hear people's stories, and somebody preferably who already knows a lot of the history. It was about a dozen things. And then he turned to me and said, and Greg, there's only one person on the planet that can write this book. You have to write this book because I was all of those things. And so, um, and I didn't want to write it. I, I don't like writing books. I'm good at it, but that doesn't mean I enjoy it. Um, and so, um, so, but though this one, I actually ended up really enjoying a lot of it. Um, but uh, yeah, that's how it, that's how it happened. I remember then calling my agent, uh, I had a, a book agent previously reach out to me and say, Hey, I'd, I'd love to, you know, uh, be your agent. If you ever want to write a book about yourself. And I was like, I don't want to write a book about myself. And then six months later, I'm, I'm, emailing him back saying, but there is something I might want to write. And the next day he, he drove to St. Louis just to, to talk to me about it. And uh, within a few months, we had a proposal going about and, and still time to care what we can learn from the church's failed attempt to cure homosexuality. Yeah. What was the turning point for you? Because you said you did not want to write this book. Was there something that made you go, okay, I have to write this book? It was watching so many younger believers be abused by their churches. Um, the amount of emotional abuse that, that gay or same-sex attracted believers go through in conservative religious spaces is just off the charts. Um, you know, somebody, you know, gay person becomes a Christian. And then some well-meaning person says, well, you can't be gay and be a Christian. And you've just told them that they can't be a Christian. Even though what you're trying to say is you can't engage in homosexual practice and be a Christian, but that's not what they're going to hear. And um, watching this younger generation just get bludgeoned in their churches. There, there's just a wake of trauma everywhere I looked. And, and so I knew somebody had to write it, but when Nate stuck the mirror in front of me and showed me that I was the guy, that's that, that was the final last straw that said, all right, I'm going to have to tell the story. Because I think telling the story, if people knew, they would change. Uh, not everybody, but a lot would. Um, I mean, I'm just a, a gay atheist kid who fell in love with Jesus and got baptized at age 20. And now I'm a 49-year-old virgin PCA pastor who's never so much as held hands. So I think I probably have the ability to, to, to speak into this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you mentioned... Uh, early on and, and just again, you know, a, a minute ago or so about um, the terminology that Christians and that churches and that pastors can use that is, uh, that could just be detrimental and very harmful to uh, to gay people, to Christians as well. You know, it's such a saying, um, uh, you know, you can't be gay and be a Christian. What are some of those other sayings and stuff that you've just heard to where it's like, yeah, this is, this has an, an adverse effect um, on people. Oh man. When somebody says, well, you might be same sex attracted now, but God won't leave you there. Um, what they're trying to be is hopeful that maybe something could happen, but what will be heard every single time without exception is if you were praying hard enough, repenting deeply enough, trusting God enough, then you will be changing. And the reality is, you know, the, 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 the ex-gay movement with hundreds of thousands of people that went through it. Um, you know, the, the last president of Exodus International 
acknowledged that it had a 99.9% failure rate at changing orientation. Um, you know, the movement helped some people break sex addictions or walk faithfully with God, but it did not have any ability to change sexual orientation. Um, I've identified maybe a dozen people who might possibly fit into that category out of hundreds of thousands and, and, and all but one of those are female. So even with men, it's even more rare. So, so yeah, those, those sorts of sayings, um, you know, <laughs> are, are really problematic. And, and the terminology of sexuality is, is complicated because there aren't any, there aren't any uh, baggage free terms to describe the gay person who repents and follows Jesus and their sexual orientation doesn't change. You know, you, you know, back in the 1970s, 1980s, you could use homosexual as a noun to describe people like that. Um, but that has, since about 1990, gone out of accepted usage. You can use it as an adverb, but not as an, a noun because of its history of, of being very clinical and its association with criminology and psychology. And so that leaves other options. You've got the term gay, which you know came out of the gay rights movement. Um, and you've got the language of same-sex attraction, which was developed by the reparative therapists starting really in around 1990. But that's so closely associated with conversion therapy that I, I know campus ministers in my own denomination, some have told me that they can't use that phrase on campus because the association with conversion therapy is so strong. Um, and, uh, and yet for some people, the term gay has all these associations that, you know, somebody who's following Jesus maybe doesn't want. And so, so I've got friends, uh, who describe themselves as same sex attracted. That would be, you know, Beckett Cook and, and Rachel Gilson and Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, and I've got friends who would describe themselves as gay. That would be Wes Hill and Greg Coles and Eve Tushnet and Nate Collins. And um, and I think the best thing Christians can do is ask somebody, well, now when you use this, what do you mean by that? Um, help me understand. And then accept whatever, however they want to describe their experience. You know, the because this impulse to say you can't be gay um, that was the first step in, in conversion therapy was that you, you renounce a homosexual self-perception and begin to think of yourself as heterosexual. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of us gave testimonies in the ex-gay movement. So many people in churches in the eighties and early nineties saw some guy out on, up on a stage talking about how he used to be gay and has come out of homosexuality. And, and then he tells the story of coming to Jesus and then out at the end, the wife and kids parade across the stage and somebody closes in prayer and everybody says it's so lovely, so wonderful. And they don't understand that that guy now has a husband, you know, that when he said and when I said I came out of homosexuality, I was not saying I've become straight. I was saying that I've renounced homosexuality as something I'm going to pursue uh, sexually in my practice because of my faithfulness to Jesus. Um, when I said, I mean, I remember in the 1990s telling somebody, hey, I used to be gay and and it never felt honest. But I was I was, you know, it was conversion therapy. You know, that was the first step is that you say you're not gay 
Um, my identity is in Christ. I'm a new creation. I'm, I'm leaning into my new heterosexuality that God is giving me. Um, and uh, yet it always felt dishonest to me because if gay was a lifestyle, I had never been in a gay lifestyle. I'm a virgin. So nothing had changed on that front. And if gay was a sexual orientation, then my sexual orientation hadn't changed. I was that's still a six on the Kinsey scale. I've never been sexually attracted to a woman. Um, and so, you know, the, the, there's no easier, good or perfect terminology. But when somebody is trying to tell their story, listen and learn and take notes and don't tell them that they need to go back into conversion therapy. Because that's what you're telling them when you say, you know, well, you can't get to be a Christian. You have to think of yourself as, as, you know, becoming a heterosexual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's a, it's like the faith faith healer who tells somebody with cancer, with leukemia, that 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 they need to believe God for their healing. And they're like, yeah, but I still have leukemia. And they're going to say, no, that's a lack of faith. You need to say, I don't have leukemia. You need to speak the word of faith. Yeah. You know, and and it's cruel because then when the cancer keeps getting worse, they're blaming themselves for not believing God enough when they should be receiving mercy and compassion from, from God and from his people. Yeah. I think one of the things that I absolutely love that you do in the book, and, and even just in our conversation, you're already doing it now, is you paint such a good picture of reality of what it looked like. And I absolutely loved love it because that's whenever we can find hope. And we're going to talk about that later and like some things that we can um, do in a, in a, in a different approach that you talk about for, for caring and everything. But there's a couple other things that I want to talk about um, just to paint uh, the picture of reality even more. And I would love to ask, what are some, what are some things either, you know, in, and I, we don't know if it's intentional or unintentional that churches just get wrong whenever it comes to having this conversation or trying to love, you know, gay or queer people or, or anyone. Well, Yeah, well, I, the biggest the biggest issue in churches is that most churches aren't really gospel, don't really have a gospel culture within them, which means that a youth growing up in a church where it's not safe to be a sinner, um, they're not going to feel safe coming out in church. And so they're going to hide. And the longer they hide, the more shame grows within them. And the more likely they are to end up with, you know, the depression, suicide attempts, ideation, um, addictive behaviors, sexual addictions. You know, just on average, it's about from from the time a person knows they're gay until the time they tell someone is is on average eight years right now. Uh, It's very long time. That's a long time for shame to just take over. Uh, that's a long time to learn to lie, to learn to hide, um, to not let the real you be seen so that the real you cannot be loved. And so you know, the biggest thing churches get wrong is, is, is having a culture about being uh, people who believe the right things and do the right things. You know, you want a pastor who talks about struggles with pornography from the pulpit. You want a congregation where people don't feel any shame in saying, yeah, our marriage is really in a bad place and we keep hurting each other a lot and it's not good and we need help and prayer. 
you know, if if church is not a safe place to be a sinner loved by Jesus, then then that church will never be a good place for somebody who's who's coming from a, a, a non-straight position. Um, and so that's that's a big thing. And that's a thing where, you know, just a pulpit being gospel centered isn't enough. It's, it's the community needs to be that where the people are ministering the gospel to one another, where no one's shocked by anything. It's, it's got to be a church where, you know, it's it's a safe place to struggle with infertility or a safe place to struggle with mental illness or a safe place to have a difficult marriage. Uh, where everybody is just pouring grace and support and encouragement into each other um, and nobody feels they need to hide. Um, that's that's a big thing. Um, but uh, yeah, churches, even churches that do that, though, they often get hung up on terminology. It's the most frustrating thing very often because it will be experienced as emotional abuse. Um, you know, People still have that old ex-gay narrative in the back of their head, particularly people of a certain age, and 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 they will struggle to realize that this is something that's not in their head. It's real. It's not likely to go away. It's a life sentence. And yet, at the same point, if God made you, you know, this side of the fall, we're all created fallen, but God still makes each of us fallen in our mother's womb. And, and whether it's through nature or nurture, if God made you gay, um, that means that there is some calling in that, you know, C.S. Lewis described it well when he talked about the positive vision for the homosexual, that's using, you know, mid 20th century language. Um, that there's a positive calling and a, a vision for the, the Christian life that certainly means um, bearing our cross, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and saying no to sexual sin. Um, but but that's some of what I wanted to explore is what is that positive vision? Um, but yeah, you churches sometimes they assume that because somebody's gay or same-sex attracted, that their biggest struggle is with sexual sin. And very often that's not the case. I mean, I've never held hands. Um, you know, oftentimes our biggest struggle is to give love and receive love. Because when you're married and have kids, you've got all these opportunities to give love and receive love. And when you're celibate, you don't have so many opportunities. I mean, I, I could go a week without holding hands as a single adult. And straight single adults are in the same place. Um, you know, and so, um, you know, understanding that sexual sin is not necessarily what this is all about. The fact that somebody is tempted by a different type of person doesn't mean that sexual sin is a bigger thing in their life. Um, you know, oftentimes straight people, they, they take one of two um, postures towards gay people who follow Jesus. Um Either they look at this other person and they see that this person has been impacted by the fall in a way that most of us haven't been. And as a result, this person may be unlikely to ever marry. They may feel different. They may be, they may experience a lot of shame. They may have just crippling loneliness and your heart goes out to them because you see their loss and you move toward them and you want to love them. 
That's one posture. The other posture is to view this person as a particularly heinous and dangerous sin. And to, when you think of the person who's same-sex attracted, you immediately think of the time you cheated on your wife or whatever, or your, your horrible, most grievous sexual sins. And, and you put them in that position and you're trying to make sure that they're taking their sins seriously and that they're really repenting like you really had to repent. Only you, it was a, a one-time kind of thing. And for them, it's continual. And so you're constantly policing them and you're constantly trying to hold them accountable and you're constantly trying to correct them because, because you don't get the gospel yourself. Um, that Jesus is a friend of sinners and that he's clothed us in the righteousness of his son so that, you know, the imputed righteousness of Christ, uh, that not only are our sins forgiven, but the righteousness of Jesus, his worthiness has been clothed over us so that in the eyes of the father, it's as if, you know, you fed the 5,000 and you raised Lazarus from the dead and you always did what pleased the father because you're in Jesus and he's all of those things. Um, and, but but that latter posture of viewing flattening people into sin is, is very damaging. Yeah, it makes me think of what you talk about, uh, the, the two approaches to people as well for the care and the cure. Would you mind kind of un, unpacking kind of what that looks like? Yeah, you know, I've, I've always thought that Henry Nowen, the, the gay Catholic priest, celibate priest, um, might have had his own homosexuality in mind when he talked about the difference between care and cure. Um, Nowen said that uh, we can't always cure, but we can always care. Um, the cure uh, uh, paradigm uh, really began in the 1970s with the founding of Exodus International uh, and Love in Action, um, the first major ex-gay ministry um, by Frank Worthen. Frank Worthen um, had become a Christian at around age 40 after having lived, you know, the full San Francisco 1970s gay fabulous lifestyle of bathhouses and saunas and peep shows and you name it. And, and then he had a very radical conversion to Jesus. And, uh, and he was encouraged to start a ministry to talk about how God was changing him. and. Uh, and he said, uh, at one point he said, when we started Exodus International, it was with the idea that you could that you could turn from gay to straight. And he claimed early on a 70 percent success rate at, at turning people heterosexual. Um, and in the 1970s, you know, these ministries just began to multiply like like mushrooms everywhere, all up and down the West Coast. These were the years of the Jesus movement when everybody was talking about divine healings and power evangelism and, and power this, that and the other. And, you know, exorcisms left and right, and people being miraculously delivered from addictions and demon possession and everything else. And right in there were people being miraculously delivered from homosexuality. And so people started coming from all over to these ministries and, um, and the, the, and it was never completely clear how somebody then becomes straight, but the first step was always, uh, you know, claiming your, 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 that, that you were no longer gay. Um, you, that's why it was called the ex gay movement. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously it, it, it lived its life. It changed. There was a lot of, there was a lot of 
of, <laughs> it's an ugly history. Buy the book and read it. It's it's a lot of lapsed leaders, a lot of false expectations. You know, you had Homosexuals Anonymous uh, founder Colin Cook talking about you know your your imputed heterosexuality uh, and and how if you if you still feel sexually attracted to the same sex, it's it's an illusion. And you need to claim by faith your 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 new heterosexuality. And and he had his 14 steps to get there. And and of course, it turns out that he was actually sexually abusing his own clients and um, ended up being fired by the ministry and then later showed up doing the same thing um, in uh, uh, in in um, Colorado in the 1990s. But um but that idea that you could you could change this, there were different approaches to change it. Some were deliverance ministries that focused on exorcism or prayer. Leanne Payne was was classic of the, the pray the gay away. Um, you had others that um, relied on the idea that basic Christian discipleship will eventually make you heterosexual. And so there was a heavy emphasis on worship, on prayer, on Bible study. Others were focused on accountability. Others looked at, uh, tried to figure out how you became gay, and in trying to heal those areas, they could then figure out how to make you no longer gay. Um, you know, the most common ones were were um, yeah, the the most common uh, uh, causes of homosexuality were believed to be, um, you know, either a damaged relationship with the same sex parent or abuse. Um, or uh, there were a few others, but uh, you know, um, but you know, to this day, I know um, gay women in churches who are walking faithfully in celibacy who can't tell anybody that they were sexually abused as a child because they're certain that Christians will then turn around and say, "Oh, well, that's probably why you became gay." You know, it's it's horrible. Um, but uh, if we could figure that out, then we could address those and 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 heal those. Um, and of course, some of them were just very much name it and claim it, believe yourself to be straight. Um, they varied, but um, but the focus was very much on curing homosexuality. The idea is that that um, as you grow in holiness, as you address the causes of your homosexuality, as you see the power of God come up on you, you will stop being sexually tempted by people of the same sex and will start being sexually tempted by people of the opposite sex or your temptations will switch gender. Um, and it happened for very few. Um, later on in the movement, it mellowed a lot and it backed off of some of those radical claims, you know, where they were claiming 70% success early on, then it became 30%, then it became 20%. And, and then later years, the focus shifted towards less towards heterosexuality and more toward holiness. Um, that's also when, uh, they stopped using the word, the, the phrase ex-gay. This would have been in the mid 1990s and replaced it with the, the term same-sex attracted, which was developed by, um, Richard Fitzgibbons, a Roman Catholic, um, uh, convert, uh, re reparative therapist, um, first developed the notion of same-sex attraction disorder as a new phrase, um, around 1990. And uh, then some other reparative therapists picked up on it. Um, of course, Fitzgibbons himself got caught up in the whole clerical um, sex abuse scandal. He had 
told a bunch of bishops to put a bunch of pedophiles back into pulpits um, and hurt a lot of people that way. But uh, yeah, so it's quite a history. But um, what what I find exciting is is that there's this paradigm of cure from the late 1970s, catching on, building in the 80s and 90s, then kind of fizzling in the 2000s and then crashing and burning in 2013. But there was an earlier paradigm, not of, of cure, but of care. Um, not of making people straight, but of loving gay people who follow Jesus and supporting them in living lives of, of sacrificial obedience to Jesus. Um, and and that's you you go back and and you know you look at at Billy Graham you look at um, uh, you know John Stott you you look at C S Lewis you you look at Richard Lovelace you look at you know um, um, Francis Schaeffer you know these were some of the most prominent figures in conservative Christianity in the nineteen sixties seventies eighties and uh, and they all had a radically different view. Um, Francis Schaeffer, who founded Labrie Fellowship, he's probably the most influential figure among highly educated evangelicals in the 20th century. Um, he uh, wrote, you know, he is there, um, the God who is there, he is there, he, he is not silent. Um, whatever happened to the human race, Christian manifesto, all of that, um, the, the mark of the Christian. But, uh, you know, he said that, uh, you know, if you were exclusively homophile, was his term, then that was unlikely to change and you were likely called to celibacy. And that the church's job is to weep with you, to love you and to support you. Um, John Stott, who, um, you know, at his death, the BBC called him the Protestant Pope. He was, you know, his book, his book uh, um, Christian Basics. Uh, sold something like, or basic Christianity sold something like two million copies, um, and uh, you know he was the leader of the Lausanne, um, you know, uh, Congress on, on World Evangelization. Um, but uh, you know, Stott said that if um, gay people can't find um, Longing, uh, can't find love, acceptance, community, intimacy within the church family, then the church needs to stop calling itself a family. Um, you know, he said that in 1982. That was a long time ago. That's 40 years ago. Um, so, so yeah, that earlier history, that earlier paradigm of, of care is is really exciting. I mean, C.S. Lewis's best friend Arthur was gay. Um, they, the, the Lewis's. Um, Letters to to um, Arthur Greaves have been collected, and it's, it's about six hundred pages of letters. They were they were best friends. They were communicating often daily. Um, they vacationed together, you know, and and for um, for Lewis, you know, Arthur's homosexuality was never an issue. Um, you know, when when I mean, gosh, when um, Lewis came out to or when Arthur came out as gay to in 1918 to Lewis, um, Lewis was supportive. Lewis was still an atheist at that time, but but he made it clear it wouldn't be an issue. And uh, and and Lewis had his own issues. Like he, Lewis never felt like he could be 
speaking from a posture of superiority because Lewis's own struggle was with sadomasochism, uh, at least at the fantasy level. He, he had always signed his letters, uh, Philomastic's wit lover to Arthur, um, and, uh, and talked about his own um, temptation to, to bring together his fascination with the thought of combining intimacy with the infliction of pain. And uh, when, when C.S. Lewis, you know, became a Christian a few years later, of course, he asked Arthur to, to destroy those letters because he was ashamed of them at that point. Um, Arthur didn't destroy them. He kind of wrote over top of the whip lover part and tried to hide it. But, you know, historians are really good these days. They can find that stuff. It's not a problem. But, but uh, yeah, and, you know, you, 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 you know, Schaefer, Francis Schaefer and Edith had gay people all the time at Labrie. It was it was a haven for, for gay people trying to figure out what they really believed, whether they believed Christianity was true. And they always found in um, in Francis and Edith Schaefer this just incredibly compassionate Christian couple who loved them, who defended them, who listened to them, who believed them when they said that they were probably born that way. Um, a lot of these folks assume that people were born gay. Um, and um, Billy Graham did. Uh, he said so explicitly to Larry King. Um, and so, um, and I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a lot of research that suggests that that's a big factor. But, um, um, but yeah, it's it's a paradigm of, of caring for people. Yeah. And you've, you've already given a couple of examples, but I would just love um, to hear you tease out more, what does what does care look like? Like on the individual level, like for you know for the everyday person, what can that look like? And then even corporately, like as as the church as well as um, you know as as the body as like a group of people, what can care look like? Like for like I guess in, I guess on the church level, I'm thinking of like someone who like is a is a pastor or a leader in the church. What can what can care look like in that? Yeah, the first thing is to educate yourself. Um, and that means putting away the Rosaria Butterfield books because they're honestly not going to help. Um, they're, they're just going to make people feel really abused um, because of some of her very, very strong opinions. Um, but uh, educating yourself, I mean, my book is in oh, yeah. large part written for Christian leaders so that they can understand um, how to handle this stuff. Um, and there's there's one one other resource that I really recommend every pastor has to have in his library, and it, it's by Posture Shift, which is the ministry of, of um, uh, 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 Bill Henson, um, and it's it's a uh, um, uh, what's it called? Um, if you just Google Posture Shift LGBT, you'll get it. But it's it's guiding families of LGBT loved ones. And it's a resource that kind of when somebody comes out to you in your church, it steps you through everything that has to happen. And most often it's a kid being raised in a church who's told their mom or dad or their pastor. And and it will walk you through that most important follow up conversation in which, you know, mom and dad say, we're really sorry that you were going through this alone and that we weren't there for you in it. We want to know your whole story and we want to be able to support you as you, as you, as you deal with this and, and where you ask them if they've been bullied and you ask them if they've 
ever had any suicidal thoughts and you, you kind of figure out what a care plan will look like so that they have people that they can process this with, be it counselors, pastors, youth group leaders, um, friends of the family, safe people. Uh, but, you know, that's that's just another resource, um, um, posture shift. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I think one big part is, as a church, is bringing single people into the center of the church community rather than pushing them out to the edge. A lot of our churches and ministries really do the age and stage thing where we, we, we segregate people out and for, and, and so then singles ministry typically means pre-married ministry. And, uh, and that doesn't leave any place for someone like me. Um, you know, in, in first Corinthians, St. Paul talks about how the, the, um, the, the, the certain members need to be, be brought in from the edges to the center. Um, you know, they need to receive extra care. And so I think in general, single adults across the board need to be brought into the center of the church. Um, no one should be alone on Christmas Day, Thanksgiving or Easter. Um, you know, they're, they're, to some level, what we need to see is a breakdown of, of the barriers that churches put up around the nuclear family so that you have people who are unmarried who have refrigerator rights in your house, meaning they have the right to open your refrigerator and grab something without having to ask permission first because the family. And, and Jesus, when he talked about family, you know, there was that point in the Gospels where he really did something very revolutionary in redefining family. Um, you know, he was in a, still in a tribal structure in, in Israel. And, uh, and his mother and, and brothers were, were, were waiting for him while he was teaching. And somebody came up to him and said, Jesus, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi, your, your mother and your brothers are, are here waiting for you. And within an honor-based, clan-based culture, the most, the, the only honorable thing to do at that point is drop everything, quit teaching, and go talk to your mother. And Jesus did not do that. He said, who are my mother and father and brothers? And he pointed around and said, all who do the will of my father in heaven, these are my mother and brothers and fathers and sisters. Um, and in doing that, he redefined family because family brought with it certain mutual duties and obligations. You know, if you had a family member who got in trouble with the law, you had to go bail them out. If you had a family member who was in financial hardship, you had to take them in. Uh, if you had a family member who was under attack, you had to defend them, even if you think they're wrong. And then you chew them out privately later. You know, that's just that's just what it, what, what family meant is um, these are the people who have your back. And Jesus said that the, the, the basic unit of family among the Christians is the church. And if that's the case, then as Americans, we really need to do some serious thinking about how we do family and church. Um, because, um, you know, if church is just a worship service and a bunch of programs, that's not a family. 
Um, and so I think the biggest thing is, is bringing, bringing them into the heart of the church. Don't try to fix them. Goodness knows you can't fix yourself. Mm. Uh, you definitely yeah. can't fix them. Um, and, and hear their story and affirm them, love them. And, and if they fall, pick them up just like you would anybody else who falls into sin. Brush them off, remind them of the gospel, ask them if they've confessed it to the Lord and, and, and help them going forward. Uh, one of the things that I I really wanted to talk with you about, and it's it's a little bit off off topic, um, but I was really intrigued by you know you mentioned it earlier, and then even seeing in your your bio earlier, um, is your degree in historical theology, and uh, one of the things that I was just really curious to ask, and this this could be you know stuff that you learned in your in your doctorate or even just stuff that you've picked up since then. I'm always like I'm a student of history. I love learning about that stuff. What's some of the uh, or one or two things uh, that you've learned through history as it pertains to theology or even just what we've been talking about that um, that really fascinates you? Oh boy, gosh! You know my my, my dissertation was on the, the historical development of the quiet time in Anglo-American devotional practice. Because, mm-hmm. you know, as, a, as an old campus crusader, I always knew that when somebody asked me how my relationship <laughs> with God is, they were really asking me if I'd had my daily quiet time in which I opened my Bible, meditated on it, and listened for that still clear voice. Um, and and I wondered, where did that come from? Because it, it didn't go back all that long. I mean, Christians have always meditated on the Bible. They've always prayed. But... Um, that that quiet time thing, where did that come from? So I, I asked that question, and I, I guess I was the first. I mean, it, the difference between a master's and a, a doctorate is a, a doctor has to create new knowledge that did not previously exist. And so I wrote my dissertation on the historical and theological development of uh, the quiet time in Anglo-American Protestant devotionalism between 1870 and 1950. It would make a really interesting three-page article. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I wrote a dissertation, um, but yeah, you know, history has been so huge, just even in, in thinking through sexuality, um, you know, cause I've, I've read a lot of, you know, there've been a lot of kind of revisionist works, um, even in evangelical circles, uh, trying to revise the, the biblical or the Christian sexual ethic. Um, I think of, of James Brownson and Karen Keene, Matthew. Divines, um, you know, kind of taking a, a what, what, what way they would call an affirming approach towards towards uh, homosexuality, um, and arguing for not for a free for all, but arguing for gay marriage within the church, um, at the very least as a concession um, for for Christians, and uh, and so, you know, one one part that I really just enjoyed digging into because part of that argument, you know, they, they, they argue that, um, you know, when St. Paul and in, you know, Romans, for example, you know, prohibits or, or, or actually several times in his letters, um, when he prohibits, um, homosexual practice, you know, he says at one point that, you know, men who have sex with men will not inherit the kingdom of, of, of God. Um, that, that Paul could only have been speaking of pedophilia or temple prostitution or various forms of abusive sexual practice. He couldn't possibly have had in mind 
um, a committed, mutual, loving relationship between two men. And, uh, and, and that's, that's a historical claim that can be tested. And I just spent a lot of time in a lot of Greek texts and Latin texts, you know, just finding out how false that argument is because it, it's based on false history. I mean, Paul was in Rome, you know, when the Emperor Nero married his first husband. And it was the talk of the empire. And Nero was the the female in the relationship. He 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 wore the you know he wore the 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 the, the bridal veil, and they had the nuptial you know uh, uh, torches and everything. And, and he then married a second time. Uh, he married five people: three women and two men, whom he loved. Um, he wasn't crazy. He was evil, but he wasn't crazy. Um, but uh, you know. During Paul's lifetime, uh, Philo of Alexandria, the great Jewish philosopher in Alexandria, lamented that 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 so many men were pairing up with other men, and and he said that if the barbarians had joined the Greeks in such practice, our cities would lie desolate because there would be no procreation happening. Um, you know, Juvenal and and Marshall and various other Roman uh, uh, playwrights. Um, wrote satirical pieces about men marrying other men. And, and uh, Marshall's in particular, afterwards, it's, it's two Roman men. And he then goes on a tirade about how these things are destroying the empire. You know, so if, if it didn't happen <laughs> in antiquity, he wouldn't have gone on the tirade against it. But uh, even in Plato's Symposium, and Paul would have been certainly acquainted with Plato. I don't know what... We, what all he would have read of, of Plato, but I mean, certainly Platonism had been for centuries the dominant intellectual force within within the Hellenistic world, and and Paul, you know, was from you know Tarsus, which was a, a main uh, a philosophical center. Uh, at one point, he calls it you know of a, a resident of no mean, a citizen of, of no mean city. In other words, it was very highly respected center of learning. And, um, and, and in his symposium, Plato had, had written um, about, uh, well, he had talked about how the early humans originally had two faces and four arms and four legs. Um, and they were, um, and, and so they'd have one face looking one way and the other on the the other side of the head, and uh, and they became so powerful um, that the gods began to be threatened by them, and so Zeus split all of the humans in two, making each one into two different people: one head, two arms, two legs. And and those who had originally had one female face and one male face, those became the heterosexuals, and they would be drawn to people of the opposite sex. And those who had originally had two male heads would always be drawn to to other men and the women likewise. And uh, and he even talks about how when how how they are prone to to um, uh, want to spend time and relationship with the same sex, and that when two find their actual 
other half, because we're all looking for other half. When they find not just another man, but their actual original other half that they then spend their entire lives together, um, not only sexually, but relationally, it's a bond, a union. And, um, you know, there's another point, uh, Agathon um, was another one mentioned, there was a, another couple um, mentioned in, in, in Plato's symposium that, that show up a couple times, uh, Pausanias and, and Agathon, and they, uh, they are obviously together over decades because the two instances in which they appear are a couple decades apart. So they were a lifelong mutual um, gay partnership. And so to say that, oh, these things didn't happen in antiquity, and so Paul must just be talking about abuse is not not the case. They knew about gay people, and gay people had always been finding ways to um, uh, engage in, in in relationships with with people they were drawn to. Um, it wasn't always, you know, pedophilia, temple sex, and abuse. Mm-hmm. And so, you can only read Paul as as prohibiting same-sex sexual practice across the board. Yeah. Uh, Greg, do you have a hard stop at the top of the hour? And if so, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's just two other questions or two other questions that I just want to give you a chance to just talk about anything that you're thinking about right now. Um, and I just want to be respectful of your time. So just wanted to ask real quick. Uh, well, I got two other things that I want to ask you, but before I ask those questions, I always love just giving people just the opportunity of, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we cover? Okay. Okay, great. Well, uh, the thing that I want to ask you is um, whether it be through, through your own ministry as uh, a pastor or care, like caring for, you know, people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, or even just through your own celibacy, I would just be curious to hear, um, what has been revealed about Jesus to you just through that? Interesting question. You know, I don't have a point of comparison for normal people, so I, I, I don't know what's unique to this, but I can say that walking with God in celibacy has been a joy. It has had, it has brought suffering. It has brought sorrow. It has brought loneliness at times. Um, but, you know, people who marry and have children can spend their entire lives looking and anticipating toward that next big thing. You know, you're, you're looking forward to the date then you're, you're looking forward to getting engaged and then you're looking forward to getting married. And then you're looking forward to, you know, putting your house together and making the home. And then you're looking forward to the first, well, maybe the goldfish and then the cat and then the dog and then the baby. And then, and then, you know, crawling and then cruising and walking and first words and all this stuff. And then, you know, pre-K and K and, you know, graduations and next kid comes and, and then sending them off to college and marrying them off. And then the grandkids come and, and you're always looking toward that next thing. And you can spend your entire life anticipating the next best thing, the next, the next thing that comes. And when you're, you're celibate, you're just here. Um, There's not that next next thing and it can give you an incredible ability to sit with God and meditate on him I I can't imagine what it would be like if I had had to be so busy 
raising a family. <laughs> I don't know how these people do it. They're, they're superheroes. I don't understand it. But uh, but just the ability to think long and hard about God, about the fact that that this life is a vapor, and we are here for but a moment. All men are like grass, and and before the eternity of God, and to meditate on His Word. I certainly don't think I could have gotten a, a MDiv and a PhD in historical theology if, if I, I weren't celibate. I, I can't imagine what that would have done to a spouse or children. Um, and uh, and I can say my own um, my own sexuality is probably something more than anything else that God has used to keep me humble uh, and broken before Him. I mean, I I can if if this is what it takes for God to keep me humble and broken and dependent upon him and trusting in his power and life, then, then I, I don't think I would want to give it up. If, if, if giving it up meant that I would have grown proud and hard. Um, so, uh, you know, it's been able, I've been able to learn to wait on God and to delight in him. And I've been able to, um, you know, there's certain things that, that, Gay people who follow Jesus learn to do. Um, they learn to recognize suffering. They learn how to create safe spaces for those who need it. Um, if you need a safe space, they're the kind of people you want to go to. Um, they know how to listen and not offer advice because not been listened to and been offered way too much advice by people who have no idea what they're talking about. Um, you know, so there, there are things that you can learn, you know, there, there are certain sins that um, same sex attracted people might be more likely to struggle with depending on how long they were closeted. You know, if you spent decades trying to put people off your scent, making excuses as to why you weren't married and didn't seem to be interested. And, you know, all the, the stuff you have to do to explain that and all the energy you put into hiding, then you may struggle with integrity. Um, but at the same point, those who have walked this walk also have, may have some certain strengths and ability to see the beauty of the gospel, you know, because I know I don't have any righteousness of my own. You know, my righteousness was credited to me by Jesus. And that is a resume that can never be taken from me. And I am not going to do anything to embellish it. Um, it's perfect already. And uh, and I can just be the broken, fallen sinner loved by Jesus, learning to trust mm -hmm. him. Yeah. And, and the last thing that uh, I would just love you to tease down, you mentioned it earlier, is just the, the quote from C.S. Lewis that you mentioned earlier, and you were talking about the positive uh, vision for the homosexual. Would you mind just teasing that out of like, what, what, what can that, that positive vision, that positive vision for life look like? Yeah. You know, when I go back and I look at, at Lewis and I look at um, Billy Graham and Francis Schaeffer and John Stott, um, I, I see a vision first and foremost of Jesus of having a life caught up in something bigger than ourselves. Um, you know, a lot of people at our churches, um, God's a small part of their life. Their life is really all about, you know, um, their career or their relationships or their family or whatever. And God's somewhere in there. Um, but I think the vision that, that God gives for, for a gay person who follows Jesus is, is that, vision of being a eunuch for the kingdom of, of, of heaven, 
you know, of, of being one who does what, what Paul does, uh, what Paul commends in first Corinthians seven, when he, when he talks about how he wishes everybody could be celibate like he is, when he says that the, the, the man who marries the virgin does well, but the man who does not marry does better. Like that's in the Bible. And I have the only person I've ever heard preach on it is me. Um, <laughs> and that's yeah. a shame, you know, talk about the idol of romance. We can't even preach that passage. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a vision of, of life. Lived for Jesus, our best friend who, who had to die for us and who did it because he's wild about us. Um, it's a, a life of responding to God's calling. It's a life of living for something bigger than ourselves. It's also a life of learning to form community, to create family. Um, you know, I have one best friend, Christian brother, that I have gotten together with every Thursday night for 17 or 18 years. I've got another elder in my church that I have been having coffee with every week, just about for 20 years now, since 2002. I've got a family in my church that's had me into their home hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, I got a lot of Father's Day cards this past Father's Day um, because of people who can look back and when they needed me, I was the dad that they needed. Um, the, the, the guy who could point them to Jesus, who could sit with them and understand. And so it's going to be different for everybody. I can't say what anybody's specific calling is going to look like, because that's going to come from, from God. But this positive vision, as well as for the church, uh, you know, Richard Lovelace in 1978 wrote a book called Homosexuality in the Church. Uh, Lovelace was a professor of, of church history at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and a conservative Presbyterian churchman and evangelical. Um, and he wrote this book. He's, he's most known for a book he wrote the next year in 1979 on the dynamics of the spiritual life, which, you know, has been huge for guys like Tim Keller and others. Um, but uh, in 78, he wrote a book and, and in it, he called for something that was different from both what the world and the church had up to that point uh, tended to offer. Because uh, on the one hand, you had those who in the liberal churches who were willing to say, let's just throw out what the Bible says or reinterpret it and say, OK, we can we can have gay relationships that are sexually active and that'd be fine. And then on the other end, you had what so many conservative Christians had had done with which, which was just pure homophobia. And he said, there's a better way, a way different from both of those, a way that requires a double repentance, a repentance both for the church and for its gay members. And that's the phrase he used, gay members. Um, a repentance in which uh, the gay members in our pews repent of their homosexual sins in which he said they actually openly avow or acknowledge their sexual orientation and repent of their homosexual sins, and in which the church repents of its homophobia. And he said the test of the church repenting of its homophobia was they're actively pursuing, developing, training, and ordaining uh, celibate gay men to ministry. And that book came with endorsements from Chuck Colson, from Elizabeth Elliott, from Ken Cancer, who is the, the, the um, uh, former editor of Christianity Today, from, from Carl F.H. Henry and 
Ronald Ockengay, who were founders of the evangelical movement in the 1940s. Um, you know, these were not liberal people, but they were calling for a double repentance in which um, people like me repent of our sexual sins and the church repents of its homophobia. And he laid down the litmus test for what that would look like. And that's that's really a question for the church today yeah. is is the church willing to repent when you've got all these gay people coming to Jesus, repenting of their sins, trying to walk with God, whether they call themselves same sex attracted, gay, queer, doesn't matter. Try to be faithful. Um, question is, is the church going to do its part in repenting of its homophobia. I mean, I, I've had several friends who were kicked out of ministry just because of their sexual orientation, not because of anything they had done. Um, I've, I've watched people be um, barred from uh, working with youth or children because they just assume that if somebody's same-sex attracted, they must be a pedophile, even though that, that, uh, that even though there, there's scientific documentation saying just the opposite. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just, there's horrible things that have been done, but there is, there is still time to care Yeah. <laughs> yep. if there, even if there's not a way to cure. Yeah. Well, Greg, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book, still time to care and to continue to learn from you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? You know, you can go to stilltimetocare.com or you can go to, uh, amazon.com. The, the book, uh, is, is. Uh, is 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 ready to go. So um, um, yeah, you can get it anywhere books are sold, but uh, stilltimetocare.com will tell you a whole lot more about it. So go for it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for just doing the work and putting it out into the world. Hey, thanks, Caleb. So coming out of that conversation with Greg, I think there's, really two thoughts that I have. The first is this, is that as, as the corporate church, I think there's a lot that we have to repent of. There's a lot that we have to not, not only repent, but lament for as well, because so many times we have been the, the burden, the obstacle in the way of people coming and experiencing the hope and the love of Jesus, particularly people who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community. And I think it is part of our responsibility to repent and to lament the pain that we've caused, whether that be intentionally or unintentionally. And I know that it's very tempting to go, well, we weren't, uh, we weren't, you know, necessarily, maybe we weren't necessarily the ones yet, but we are a part of the greater church. And I just think it's part of our responsibility to do so, to own up to the mistakes that, that we have made, because we, as followers of Jesus, we are the representation of Jesus. And I think just even the, probably the second thing is just that quote from Henry Nouwen. And, you know, he, he said in there just as, um, you know, Greg mentioned the quote as well, you know, often we are not able to cure but we can always care. And that is true for any number of situations. That isn't just people who are experiencing um, same-sex attraction or who are gay or lesbian or queer or whatever that might be. Um, that's true for so many different things. Often the thing that I think we, that we want to do is we want to care, and I'm very guilty of that as well. 
but man, what if we just decided just to just, and this sounds so simple. Um, and maybe it is, but I don't think that means that it's simplistic and that does not mean that it's easy. What if we just decided to love people well and to treat others the way that we would want to be treated? I think that would radically change everything. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do here on the Learner's Corner podcast as well, of create create those types of environments, create those types of places to where people can experience love and to where they can have, you know, a safe place to have a difficult conversation and to where they can learn free of judgment from anyone and from everyone as well. So I would love to hear uh, from you if this episode, you know, resonated with you, if there's something recently that you're super excited about learning from, or if you have an idea uh, that you would love us to cover or someone that you would love for us to talk on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. The best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Also, leave a rating, write a review on Apple. That would mean a ton. And hit follow or subscribe on whatever podcast player you use as well. Thanks to Garrett Oler for doing the editing on this podcast. Thanks to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you, Greg, for being on the podcast today and just for doing the work as well and for creating this awesome book for us. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. I think that's all I have for today. So until next time, keep learning and keep growing.